Let's turn to Jeremiah. After all, this is Romans. I'd like to extend a special greeting and welcome to our co-laborers in the Lord who are with us today, Reverend and Reverend Michael and Lynn Manley. Would you two stand, please? We want to welcome you into our fellowship. (laughs) Wonderful to see you. Thanks for coming. Try to keep an eye on Pastor Brown. He hasn't laid down his bowling trophies yet. So like the song says, lay your trophies down. It's bowling. And speaking of bowling trophies, there's a ninth annual bowlathon happening on April 7th from 1 to 4, sponsored by, is it Gigi or Gigi? Again, Gigi's gang, that's Pauletta. Grandchildren give you funny names. And it's at the Wildlife Lanes in Lower Burrill, PA. And you can, I think there's still announcements for it to be picked up at the tape table or the information table. Sounds like a lot of fun. And I I kid Pastor Brown because he did get a 300 game or two in his life and he has the trophies and rings to prove it. So he'll probably have them on all display on the bullathon. Unless he takes up the old rugged cross, at which time he'll just lay those trophies down, you know, so now... Let's see, there's another reverend, Reverend Henry. You're going to have a March 8th, right? March 8th, the Power Gospel, one of the Tetelestai favorite nights. That's Thursday, March. Yes, you can say woohoo. That's good. <laughs> March 8th, right here on our stage. And he'll be bringing either a five fists full of message or just a four, one or the other, four or five messages that will end up on website, right? (laughs) I'm working on that all my life. This one, this six-pack. There is one underneath a lot of things. But uh, I had a couple songs on my mind on the way down, and I think one of them is a rock song, and one is a uh, song from a play called Fiddler on the Roof, If I Were a Rich Man. If I were a rich man, we're going to be seeing how that plays in. And then there's another one by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers called Working on a Mystery. I never would have known that was the title, but you have these titles flashed on your radio now. And I've been doing that for about 40 years, working on a mystery. Mystery that has been silent for ages past, but is now by the command of the eternal God manifested. My word shall come like rain. Okay, let's look then at Jeremiah 9. The the hypothesis that I've been going on now for several weeks, for Sunday mornings only, is that this word of the Lord through Jeremiah fans out all the way through Romans. In fact, we see it fanned out through all of Paul's epistles, as we'll see some other time and throughout the New Testament. And that's the case with many of the words through the prophets, because, in fact, it is in the writings of the prophets that this mystery is now revealed. The mystery, which is the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to a shocking revelation of a mystery. The mystery has to do with God's wisdom, God's strength, and God's wealth. And we want to see how this Jeremiah, and I, I, again, it's a, it's a hypothesis, so I'm testing it out. Let's look at it. Jeremiah 9.23. This is what the Lord says. The wise person must not boast in his wisdom. The strong person must not boast in his strength. We've done those two, and we're going to, Settled in on this one a little bit today. The rich person must not boast in his wealth. Instead, says verse 24, if someone boasts, let him boast that he understands and knows 
that I am the Lord who does mercy and judgment and righteousness on the earth. The earth is the horizon of God's mercy and his judgment, which is the cross of Christ and his righteousness, which is his saving act in Christ, which occurred in the Christ event of his crucifixion, burial, resurrection, and exaltation, but which is an ongoing event by the Spirit of Christ, as Romans 8, 9 indicates, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, as Philippians 1, 19 indicates, the Spirit of the Son, whom God sends into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, says Galatians 4, 6, and Romans 8, 14 and following. The rich person must not boast in his wealth. Now, this may not appear in the notes on the website. In fact, a lot of today's message may not. But I thought of the rich man in the scripture. There was a rich young ruler that Mark tells us about. And it's repeated in Matthew and Luke, which are sort of expansions on Mark. Now, Mark was a co-laborer together with Paul. He was often with Paul. And Paul influenced him strongly before he wrote his gospel called the gospel according to Mark. A rich young ruler came to Jesus and he was rather arrogant, but the Lord looked upon him and it says in Mark 10:21, the Lord looked upon this rich, young, somewhat arrogant ruler and it says beholding him, he loved him. There's a strong argument that this rich young ruler was Paul himself, Saul of Tarsus, a very influential nobleman who at one time once knew Christ only after the flesh, once knew Christ only after the flesh, met him again in resurrection. There's a pretty good theory there. We worked it out a little bit before. But the point is, here's a rich man, and Jesus beholds him and simply loves him. And then there is Zacchaeus, a rich man, in Luke chapter 19. He's not very tall of stature, so he climbs up into a tree to see Jesus come by. And his riches were not really acquired by honest means. He was a tax collector who liked to peel a little off the top. And Jesus just looked up into that tree and he says, come on down, Zacchaeus, I must come to your house today. I'm coming to your house today. And so Zacchaeus welcomes him. But the upshot of that whole thing is that Jesus said at the end of that conversation in Zacchaeus's house, today salvation has come to your house. Salvation has come to the house of a rich man. And it wasn't because he said to Jesus, I promise I'll pay back fourfold all that I've ripped off. It wasn't because of that. It was because of the wealth of God's mercy. And he concluded by saying in Luke 19, 11, for the son of man has come to seek and save the lost. And then there's the rich man. Oh, the famous rich man in Luke 16. The rich man who neglected the cries of Lazarus outside his gate. He fared sumptuously every day, as the King James said. He had his own meals all the time. He was dressed in glorious garments. And it says the rich man died and was buried. And he lifted up his eyes in Hades. And I thought of that, and as I was thinking, Isaiah 53, 9 came to my mind, speaking of Jesus Christ and his death. And it says, he made his death with the rich man. He died, when he died, he died with the rich man. So despite the tale that goes around 
about Lazarus and the rich man and the gap between them, the reality is that Jesus died with the rich man. And Jesus bore the hell of the rich man. So when any rich man dies, he does not open his eyes being in torments. He opens his eyes being very surprised at the wealth of God's mercy. Why should you boast in the uncertainties of the wealth of this age, the wealth of your savings, the wealth of your inheritance, the wealth of your talent, the wealth of your ability, the wealth of even the Pharisees, the wealth of the scriptures they memorized, worn on their heads and shoulders as phylacteries. We have no wealth to boast in because of the wealth of God's mercy. Now, in Romans 1.5, Paul uses a plural, curiously, first-person plural. And he says, we received grace and apostleship. We received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience, and that's allegiance, the allegiance of faithfulness by all nations, all the nations, on behalf of the name of Jesus Christ. And that Lord Jesus Christ is the royal descendant of David. Now, this, there's a whole line of doctrine that are going to develop here. Paul was a herald, as we are, a herald of the king. The message that we proclaim is the kingdom of God, the dominion and the domain of a slaughtered and standing lamb, the son of David, according to the flesh, raised from the dead and declared to be the son of God, by power, by the Holy Spirit, the spirit of sanctification, the spirit of holiness. And so when Paul heralded this gospel, the result was to be the allegiance of faithfulness. And we know, thank God, from the scriptures in Isaiah forty-five twenty-three, that the Lord says, every knee will bow to me and every tongue profess its allegiance to me. And Paul quotes this even in Romans 14, 11. That's a saving acknowledgement of the Lord because of the wealth of his mercy. The wealth of God's mercy. Perhaps that's the thought we'll reflect on today. So, we received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faithfulness by all the nations on behalf of the name of Jesus Christ, the royal descendant of David, who is designated son of God by God's power through the resurrection from the dead by the spirit of sanctification. That's Romans 1, 3 to 5. Now, though Paul elsewhere specifies his own reception of this grace, which was extraordinary, here he makes it plural. And by doing so, he identifies all of us saints as God's apostolate. All of us with the message as ambassadors of Christ, beseeching you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And he has given to us this word of reconciliation. Which by which we plead with the world, be reconciled to God. For he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the very righteousness of God. That means the very evidence of the saving act of God in Christ. He goes on to say, we don't receive this grace in vain, because now, is the day of salvation. Now is the day of the salvation that Isaiah prophesied in 49.8. So Paul spreads out that call to all of us. That apostolate is the church. Therefore sanctify the Lord Christ in your hearts and be ready to give an answer for the, and a reason for the hope that's in you. Our hope is according to a mystery, according to God's secret intention 
that all things in the heaven and all things on earth will one day be summed up in Christ. And he does this by the peace that he secured through the blood of Christ's cross. Because God, who was rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, by grace you are saved. Notice that in Ephesians 2.4. In 2.1 it says, we were dead in trespasses and sins. And when he says we, he means all of us. He says we were children of wrath by nature. Not some of us, but all of us. Pharaoh isn't the only vessel suitable for wrath. All of us were vessels suitable to receive God's wrath. But because of the mercy of God and the wealth of his mercy, we received instead a salvation by grace. And through faithfulness is how it should be. And that's not of yourself. That not of yourself. That not of yourself. It is the gift of God. And that includes the faith by which we participate in Messiah's faithfulness. We could even say he believed for us. We could even say, not my will, but yours be done for us all. And so when he was crucified, I was crucified. When he was buried, I was buried. When he arose, I arose with him. And I live now my life in the flesh by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That acknowledgement I just made, you can make. And you can make it with equal, unqualified confidence. So though Paul elsewhere specifies his own reception of this grace, here he makes it plural, and by doing so, he identifies all of us saints as an apostolate as the means by which God calls all the nations to obedience, the obedience that is faith. But that faith is even called forth by the Holy Spirit, who gives the gift of faith. You could say it all depends on believing. It all depends on our faithfulness. And I would say to you, perhaps, but thank God that Jesus Christ was faithful for us. I still feel the loss of Dr. Billy Graham. And I remember what he said that probably more profoundly moved me than any of the messages I heard, even as a very young man, as I was wrestling with my own calling. In an interview, he was asked, asked point blank by the interviewer, are you a good man? And he said, Jesus Christ is a good man for me. And then he, he truly understood, therefore, that it's Jesus Christ's faithfulness. It's Jesus Christ's goodness. Jesus Christ is a good man for me. If any man sins, let him know that he has an advocate with the Father. If any woman sins, let her know that she has an advocate with God the Father. Even Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the propitiation for our sins, but not for our sins only but because of the wealth of God's mercy for the sins of the whole world. In Romans 12:3 and Romans 15:15 15, 15, which we already did, we're already halfway through almost all the way through Romans 15 because in the middle of the week in case you haven't been here, we've been doing a pincer movement. We're starting at Romans at the right flank all the way at the right end and from the left flank all the way at the front end and putting a squeeze on the center. And we're finding out that there's a wonderful interpretation in doing it that way. So we've already looked at Romans 15, 15, in which Paul says, according to the grace that was given to me, I had to do some certain rough talking through my epistle. You're able to do this yourself, he said. You've got pastors that can do it among you. You have each one of you can encourage yourself. You're all full of goodness and knowledge, he says in 1514. But I pulled rank according to the grace that was given to me as an apostle 
who received a commission directly face to face from the risen Christ, Jesus the Nazarene. I pulled rank and had to say some tough things to remind you of certain things, he said. And I did this boldly with audacity. But then he went on to say in verse 17 and 18, my audacity does not extend to anything unless it was what Christ accomplished by me in proclaiming the gospel from Jerusalem all the way to Croatia. So we've seen this. So Paul says, and again in Romans 12, 3, by the grace that's given to me, I urge you to stop being arrogant and deluded by your own self-importance, which again is the echo of Jeremiah. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the strong man glory in his strength. And guess what? There was a whole group in Rome at the time, in Romans 14, who called themselves the strong. And Paul is letting Jeremiah echo, let not the strong boast in their strength. And they had a name for another group. They called them the weak, the weaklings. And then there was a people that certainly had, that had a certain diet prescription. And it was, they were called the lettuce eaters by the omnivores, those who could eat everything. And the lettuce eaters called the strong who could eat anything garbage bellies. And so it went back and forth, and there was all these divisions rooted in cultural, ethnic, racial, performance, liturgy, all the things that make for divisions. And Paul says, let, let Jeremiah echo. Let not the wise man, let not the strong man glory boast in his strength. Let not the rich man boast in his wealth. But notice what he says in Ephesians 3, 8, and 9. He speaks of an extraordinary grace given to him because he really meant it when he said that he was less than the least of all saints. There's this adjective in the Greek that says less, but then you put an ending on it. There's a postscript on the word, as, as we might say it, or a suffix at the end of the word that makes it the very least of all. Absolutely the very least of all. And Paul says, I am the absolutely very least of all the saints. He goes on to explain why in other passages. He persecuted the church of God in his zeal for Torah. He persecuted the very community of the God that he claimed to be worshiping. So he says in Ephesians 3.8, to me, the very least of all the saints was given this grace. We should put a colon there in the English. It was given this grace. What is that grace? To proclaim the good news of the incomprehensible wealth of the Messiah. Paul had to be reduced to a man of no wealth in terms of his own righteousness. He had to be reduced to a man of no wisdom in terms of his own intellectual abilities. He had to be reduced to a man of no power whatsoever so that he could glory in the grace of Messiah. And he did do that. To me, the very least of all the saints was given the grace to proclaim the good news of the incomprehensible, that's incalculable, impossible to measure, infinite wealth of the Messiah. And notice what this next verse says. It's fotizo in the Greek. And to turn the light on, he says, to turn the light on for everyone to see the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. To preach, proclaim, announce the incomprehensible wealth of the Messiah. We're going to see that word again. I can't even pronounce it. It's A-N-E-X-I-C-H-N-I-A-S-T-O-S, and I haven't had time enough to even pronounce it. So it's incomprehensible to me, the incomprehensible wealth of the Messiah. And to turn the light on, he said, 
It's as if he's going to the Gentiles that the Old Testament prophets say dwell in an outer darkness. And he goes into that outer darkness and he turns a light on. And it's a light that every man and every woman is to see. It's the mystery of God's intention to sum up everything in Christ and to make everyone wealthy with the inexhaustible wealth of the Messiah. That's God's love. We were vessels of wrath, children of wrath by nature, not some of us, all of us. We were under sin as a power and controlled by it. We had death swinging over our head like the sword of Damocles. We were slaves to sin, to our own aspirations and ambitions and arrogance and desire and clamor for superior honor over others. We were all children of wrath. And that means we were all people for whom wrath would be the sensible thing to fall upon us. The wrath of God would be the sensible thing to fall upon us. But thank God, God doesn't go by common sense. To err is human, and common sense is very human. God goes beyond common sense. He goes beyond fate. When people think in terms of fate, they say, this person deserves wrath. And so they think that that will be the fate of that person. But fate is the slave of providence, God's providence. And God's providence arises from his mercy. He always acts way past what you would think in common sense, what I would think in my biases, what I would think in my imaginings, in my thinking, in my reflection, in my contemplation. He goes way beyond that. He's with the rich man in his death. So no rich man ever opens his eyes being in Hades. Never. Because Jesus Christ was the one on the cross who opened his eyes being in Hades. He was writ with the rich man in his death. That's not just speaking of Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. That's speaking of the fact that Jesus Christ experienced the wrath for which the rich man was fitted. That's the wealth of the mercy of God. It goes way past fate, way past what you would think someone's destiny should be, way past what you think people have been. Where are they now, they say. And I've even heard people in celebrities say recently, well, that person belongs in the lowest depths of hell. And I'd say to them, so do you. And I'd say to them, so do I. For sure. If it weren't for mercy, it's not according to works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. According to his mercy, he saved us. By a bath of regeneration that he gave us. It wasn't when we submitted to water baptism. It's when God submitted us to his own righteousness and bathed us by the Holy Spirit. So look at this again to me in Ephesians 3, 8, the very least of all the saints, don't leave Romans, was given this grace to proclaim the good news of the incomprehensible wealth of the Messiah and to turn the light on for everyone to see the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This has such a mate in Romans eleven thirty three, where we're going to turn very shortly. But first, a couple of other things. This is Jeremiah fanning out. His word fans out like a dry grass fire throughout Romans, and I hope it fans out through our lives. This message causes me to step outside of myself and to live outside of myself, to live beyond myself, and to say, I can do all things, bear all things, endure all things through Christ and through the Spirit of Christ who strengthens me. Christ and the Christ Spirit being one. This incomprehensible wealth of the Messiah then goes back, as we've already seen, to Ephesians 2.4, the riches of God's mercy because of the great love he had for us. Who was us, the children of wrath by nature, dead in sin? Whom he made alive in Christ. And I love how he says it in verse 5. He kind of does a dash and then says, 
By grace you were saved. And then he says you were lifted up with him and placed in the heavenly places together with Christ to be trophies of his incomprehensible grace for the ages to come. Then he says, for by grace you were saved through faithfulness. And that wasn't yours. It's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And it's the gift of God, lest any person should boast. Guess where that came from? Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Going to boast? Boast about knowing and understanding this God of incomprehensible mercy. This incomprehensible wealth also goes forward, and again, it sweeps through Romans like a dry grass fire. One of the things we used to do in North Bennington, I never did it because I got out of town before I could really do something wonderful like set a grass fire. Everybody knew that some of the kids in Vermont were going to set a grass fire. They all knew it. The fire department knew it. And so they took it as an occasion. Oh, good, a grass fire. So the kids do it. They set it and run. And then the firemen use that as an excuse to drink a lot of beer and go out and put out the fire with fire hoses. And so... I thought of the grass fire, how quick, and if it's really dry, it's like August, it hasn't rained for like three weeks. Man, those fires go, they go sailing fast, and the firemen have to really drink fast and then get to the, so it would spread very fast. And I thought this word of Jeremiah is like a fire, and it spreads across Romans, and it goes through Romans like a dry grass fire. And I want that to go through your life and my life like a grass fire, too. The incomprehensible wealth of Messiah, like a, a dry grass fire to Romans 2.4. The wealth of God's beneficence, which is his infinite goodness and his clemency and his patience, which, Paul call, which Peter called salvation in 2 Peter 3.15, leads... In Romans 9.22, look there for a moment. This mercy leads, first of all, Romans 2.4, which says, Do you despise the clemency and the mercy of God, which leads you to repentance? What led you to a repentance? What led you and me to a change of thinking? What led us to have the mind we have now toward God in Christ? The mercy of God. The wealth of his mercy. Now, finally, there's a translation written by a universalist scholar. His name is David Bentley Hart, H-A-R-T. And this is what he writes in Romans 9.22. First, I'll do his translation, then a very brief note, because he's really on to something. Romans 9.22. What if God, Paul says... Now, this is extraordinarily important because Calvin's people stopped here and they developed a doctrine of election. And they said grace was, that salvation was by grace alone. Luther said it was by faith alone, sola fide. Calvin said it was by grace alone, sola gracia. And yet there was an election of some and a predestination of some to salvation and others to damnation. Now, Barth came along and said, that's true. There is a double predestination. And Jesus Christ received the predestination to rejection on the cross. And Jesus Christ received the predestination for all mankind for salvation in his resurrection from the dead. So you want to talk about a double predestination? You better look right where Paul looks, Christ and him crucified. But Calvin's people didn't go that far. Nor did Luther's people. But it's time to do it now. Look at Romans 9.22. And what if God, now notice he's saying here, what if God, what if, though disposed to display his indignation, that's his wrath, and make known what is possible for him, what if he tolerated with enormous magnanimity Vessels of wrath, or vessels, he says, of indignation, suitable for destruction. Verse 23, 
in order that he might also make known the wealth, notice the word wealth, it's the same word used in the Septuagint of Jeremiah, the wealth of his glory upon vessels of mercy that he had already prepared for glory. Whom, he says in verse 24, us, that is, he called not only from the Judeans, but also from the Gentiles or the nations as well. But on the bottom line, he gives a note on page 306 of his translation of the New Testament. And it says, this whole passage is conditional in form. And he's right. It says, what if God did this? And is finally negated as counterfactual, meaning it's a what if, but he doesn't. What if God just had wrath on vessels of wrath so that he could save vessels of mercy? What if he did that? But in Romans 11, he says he didn't do that. It's a what if, but he says it's proven to be counterfactual in Romans eleven thirty two. This is where people don't go. They don't go to 1132. This is what Phil and I were talking about. We went to a game down in Florida at the Lecom Field, and my brother-in-law, my other brother-in-law, Jerry, said he wanted me to meet someone, so he brought this guy all the way over to meet us. And the guy was all excited about Calvinism. He says, you know, you're, sa- you're elected by grace. You're saved by God's grace and mercy. And I, I suggested this. I said, you know, I, I actually think that God's going to show mercy to all. And he didn't get it. He was like so excited about it. He just became a Calvinist. So he was all excited about the election of grace on some. And I couldn't, you know, he couldn't quite get through. So, and he was in his 80s. So I guess he's pretty fixed and he'll have to find out like a lot of people are going to find out uh, post-mortem, or as they say, POMO, post-mortem. So, now maybe he did discover it. But here's what Romans eleven thirty two says. For God has imprisoned all. Paul's favorite word in Romans, I say, would be this word, pantas, rooted in pas equals all times 75 in Romans, 75 times in Romans, 75 times. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience. That's apatheon, which also means unbelief. Disobedience, which also means disbelief. God put everybody in a prison called disbelief and disobedience. In order to do mercy, the word is do mercy, do mercy to all. Did you hear that? That's the wealth of God's mercy. You want to be excited about riches? You won't boast in yours if you see the wealth of God's mercy. To do mercy to all. Now, what's 924 says? Here's a hint of where we're going. Not this week, but weeks to come. If you want to brag, brag about this, that you know me who does mercy. You know and understand the Lord, me, who does mercy. What's the first thing you want to know about God if you really understand him? He does mercy. To who? To everybody, including the rich man that the Pharisees like to think belongs in hell. And yet they were the very rich man that they were talking about. And Christ died for them. And he was dying for them while they were crying, crucify him. Imagine the wealth of God's mercy. We can't imagine it. It goes past our thinking about fate and fatalism and destiny and who deserves what. The scandal of the cross is that very scandal. It takes away all your thought about who deserves what. Little Bill should have learned that in Unforgiven. Unfortunately, he was shot with a Spencer rifle. As William Money said to him, deserves got nothing to do with it. Now, so if you hadn't seen that movie, don't worry about it. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience. Somebody say, what a worldly pastor. He starts off with a rock song, goes to an R-rated movie of Clint Eastwood. What a worldly man. Yep, that's me. I am what I am by the mercy of my God. That's all. It's my testimony. 
God has imprisoned all in order to do mercy to all. Like Jeremiah 9.24 says, do mercy. I do mercy in all the earth. That's the horizon, all the earth. His will is done on earth as it is in heaven, where mercy rules the day. This is the horizon of God's mercy, which is to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth by the peace that he made by the blood of Christ's cross. I find myself totally relying in complete, total, confident reliance on Jesus Christ. We were criticized once. A person said, They used to go to this church. This was years and years ago, so don't try to think about who it was. And they said, why do you stop going to that place? And they said, they rely too much on Jesus Christ. And I thought, yes. But look where 11 goes now. 11.32 goes to this. 11.33. Oh, Paul says. Oh, the depth of the, it doesn't say wisdom, it says wealth first. Oh, the depth of the wealth. What is he coming off from here? He's coming off from the showing of mercy to all. So what's he talking about here? Oh, the depth of the wealth of what? Of God's mercy and wisdom. You see, his wisdom is a saving wisdom. It's the cross of Christ. He, des- he designed it and decreed that the world, by its own wisdom, would never come to know God. You can't come to know God through your own wisdom. That was the decree of God. So why should anyone boast in his wisdom if you can't come to know God by it? It's got to be God turning the light on. So, oh, the depth of the wealth, that's the same word Jeremiah uses, Plutos, the wealth and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unfathomable are his judgments? And we've already seen his judgments are saving. That's why they're unfathomable. We think of judgment, we think of damnation. We think of judgment, we think of condemnation. We think of judgment, we think of a gavel dropped and damnation. But this judgment is unfathomable because God made two judgments. Let me put the Jews in disbelief. Let me put the Gentiles in disbelief. Let me unlock the door by mercy. That's the judgment of God that's unfathomable. It's unfathomable to the preacher, to the bishop, to the monsignor, to the cardinal, and to most of the popes, with the exception of John Paul II, who understood the cosmic dimension which I even quoted at my mom's funeral service, John Paul, because it was in a Catholic church. I said, Pope John Paul said there's a cosmic dimension to the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. I realize sometimes that when you do that, you've ruined every reason to keep on doing the same thing every Sunday. But anyways, that's... Anyways. Oh... The depth of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unfathomable are his judgments. How incomprehensible his ways of acting. That he would act through a crucified man to save the world. That's Nobody would have thought of that. Who would have thought of it? And here he even says that. Who has ever become his advisor? Who has ever known the mind of the Lord? Who would have thought it? Who would have thunk it? Who knew? Who has ever first given to him and has to be repaid? I'm giving to you by believing. You got to repay me with salvation. No way. Nope. You're saved by grace through the faithfulness of another. Not of yourself. Not of yourself. Not of yourself. That's the cure for all our ailments. Not of ourself. Extra say. Outside of ourself in Christ. Extra say. Outside of ourself. Not curvature in upon ourselves which is the effect of sin in every life of the human race but a life outside of ourselves i refer you to last week's message who has ever first given to him and has to be repaid and look at verse 36 for from him here's what the wealth means here's his wealth from him and through him 
and to him are all of the beings of the entire universe in all of its times. That's what it's saying. To him be the glory for the ages. Amen. To him be the boasting. To him be the glory. To him we boast. The wealth or the riches of his glory corresponds to the wealth of his mercy. Grounded in his great love for us, says Ephesians 2.4 and John 3.16. This wealth, which is the enormous magnanimity that Hart writes about, was not extended to Jews or to Gentiles alone, but to all. So there's no reason for anybody in Rome or the United States of America to hold on to group biases and group pride which discredits other groups. No need for it. Let me read it again. Oh, the depth of the wealth. Listen carefully. The rich man must not boast in his wealth. And wisdom and knowledge of God, how unfathomable are his judgments and how incomprehensible, same word in Romans, or rather in Ephesians 3.8, his ways of acting. That word incomprehensible, that Greek word that I'm not going to try to pronounce this time, in Romans 11.33 and in Ephesians 3.8 is used three times in the Old Testament, every one of them in Job. And that takes on a line of study that blew my mind so much that I don't have much of a mind left. How unfathomable are his judgments, how incomprehensible his ways of acting. For who has ever known the mind of the Lord? Who has ever become his advisor? Who has ever first given to him and has to be repaid? And so verse 36 is actually a description. How will we describe his wealth? Well, this way. How about this way? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory for the ages. Now, back in Esther 1, 1 through 4, there was a king named Xerxes. Xerxes was the king over 127 provinces. He ruled from India to Ethiopia, or the modern Sudan. He had such wealth that he displayed it for 180 days. He displayed his wealth for 180 days. And that display of wealth is a man, the rich man, glorying in his wealth. Herod gloried in his wealth. He had a similar display, and he had a fantastic banquet. But you know what that kind of riches serves as the last dish? A prophet's head on a plate. John the baptizer, his head on a plate, brought as if it's the last dish of the banquet in which the rich man glories in his wealth. The rich man glories in his wealth at the expense of the life of the prophets. And ultimately at the expense of the life of the Messiah. But God in his incomprehensible mercy is with the rich man even in his death. Isaiah 53, 9. That's mercy. So what is he saying here? And I'll close soon. He does this mercy to vessels. That's people, vessels, earthen vessels, people made of earth. He does this mercy to vessels suitable for wrath, which we all were. Now, you may boast that you know this Lord. Now, you may boast. You're free to boast now. Turbulence is over. You're free to move about the cabin. You're free to boast in the Lord that you understand him, that you know him who does mercy. To whom does he do mercy? To people that are in need of mercy. That is everybody. And so that's why Paul said, I persecuted the church of God, but read it sometime in 1 Timothy 1.13, but I received mercy. 
Read it sometime. He says, and the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. In verse 14 of 1 Timothy. Read in 1 Timothy 1.15. So here is a statement you can trust. One that fully deserves to be accepted. The Messiah came into the world to save sinners and I'm the number one sinner. The one who's the number one sinner is the least of all the saints and to him the grace was given to reveal this kind of mercy. He was just fitted for this kind of mercy and to be the announcer of it. So we'll close by looking at Paul. Paul himself, the author of Romans, the epistle, under inspiration of God. He was greatest among his contemporaries, he said in Galatians. Greatest among the students of the Torah. He was He became the least of all the saints. He himself was a man of wealth. He may have even been the rich young ruler who, knowing Christ only after the flesh, went away sad because he was rich. Notice that. Sad because he was rich. Sad because he was rich. I just hit the lottery for 20 million. You should be sad. If you don't have the capacity for it, you should be sad. Interview some of the people that have come into sudden wealth. Interview them 10 years later. If they can still talk. Now, that's not the case with everyone, but he went away sad. But Jesus, even in the flesh, beheld him and loved him. Jesus, loving him, gave himself for him. Christ in his risen glory confronted him. And shattered him. We'll close by looking at one more verse. All I did for today's message is really select the materials. That's part one of my three-part study strategy. Let's turn to Job just for a moment. Because that's where the word that I can't pronounce, incomprehensible, comes from. Paul probably grabbed it up right from Job. 34. Look at 3424. The Holman Christian Standard grabs it up pretty good. I looked at the Greek and the Hebrew of it. It says, he shatters the mighty. Remember I said the gospel is a world-shattering announcement. It shatters the rich man's boast. It shatters the wise man's boast. It shatters the boast of the strong. He shatters the mighty, and then it says, without an investigation, and sets others in their place. He doesn't have to do, and he didn't have to do an investigation of me. He knew my situation. And so he just shattered me without an investigation. <laughs> and It was the best thing that ever happened to me because it shattered the curvature in upon myself that was killing me. It shattered me in myself. And it invited me out to him. Outside the camp is outside ourselves. Bearing Christ's reproach. Why do we bear Christ's reproach when we're called out from ourselves? Because we've been crucified with Christ. And the world of people that are curved in upon themselves won't understand at all. They can't even begin to comprehend the person outside of themselves in Christ. They can't do it. As Jesus said, we that are led by the Spirit, they don't, the world doesn't know where we're coming from. He doesn't, the, the Spirit blows where he listeth, he said, and nobody knows where they're coming from. So is everyone who's carried along by the Spirit. They're outside of themselves, outside of the camp, outside of Christendom even. Christians scratch their heads over the, the, the Christian. <laughs> so he shatters him without an... Jesus never committed himself to people in John 2.24 because he knew it was in a man. So he didn't need an investigation. He knew it was in Saul of Tarsus. So he shattered him without having to do a trial first. 
He didn't have to listen to the testimony of witnesses. He didn't have to listen to a prosecuting attorney or the defense attorney for Paul. He knew it was in Saul. And so he met him on the road to Damascus, right out the outskirts of Damascus, where he was going to go to persecute more Christians. And he shattered him without an investigation. You did that to me without an investigation. Jesus said, I came for a judgment so that those who see will be struck blind. What is he saying? Those who think they're wise will be shown that their wisdom is nothing. But he do- why does he strike blind the wise man? So that he can make the blinded wise man see. And that's what happened to Paul. You don't just leave it there. That person was wise. So God blinded their wisdom and they went to hell. No, God blinded their wisdom to make them truly wise with the wisdom of Christ and the wealth of his mercy. He blinds us to make us see. And the blind who don't see, he makes them see. That means both sides of the ledger. They don't need, God doesn't need an investigation to justify the ungodly. He doesn't need a just, an investigation of your life and an inquisition to justify and rectify the ungodly. He does it out of hand because of what Christ did on the cross. He did say it is finished, I believe. He came for judgment that the wealthy would be made poor in order to be made rich with the incalculable wealth of Christ. So the absolute contrast of the very least of all the saints to the incomprehensible wealth of Christ. Look at that absolute contrast. The very least of all the saints announces the incomprehensible wealth of Messiah. Saul of Tarsus was once mighty. He was shattered by God without an investigation. And then you know what it says? He sets others in their place. He sets another in the place. Once he shattered Saul, he put another in his place. Who? Paul. He shatters the old man and he puts the new man in his place. He shatters you to put the new you in the place of the old you. For you died and your life is hid with Christ in God. All the treasures of wisdom are hid with Christ. Christ, but you are hid with Christ in God. Everything belongs to you. Imagine your wealth, Paul said to the Corinthians. Everything is yours. Death is yours. Life is yours. The world is yours. Peter is yours. Paul is yours. Apollos is yours. The future is yours. And you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Why would you glory in your own wealth? in wealth that you've acquired, in wealth that you've accumulated, which Paul said to Timothy, tell the people that are wealthy in your church not to trust in the uncertainty of their riches. So here's the closer. It's Romans 16, 25 to 27. This is why the fire goes all the way through Romans. Here it is, the end. Romans 16, 25. Now to him. Not unto us, says the prophet, not unto us, said the psalmist, but unto him. It is not us, not we that has made us, but he that has made us. He is the shepherd. Now to him who has what? The power to strengthen you. He has the power to strengthen you. I put in brackets, the strong man must not boast in his strength. The strong woman must not boast in her strength. Now to him who has the power to strengthen you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of a mystery kept silent for ages of time gone by, but now manifested through the writings of the prophets and made known to all the nations by command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience that is faith. Notice what he says then, to the only wise God... The wise man must not boast in his wisdom. Through Jesus Christ be glory for the ages to come. 
Amen. The only wise God should be translated only dash wise. Only wise. Only wise. It doesn't mean there's lots of gods and he's the only wise one. It means he's the only wise being in the universe. And anybody that's going to be wise has to have his wisdom. And his wisdom is unto salvation, as the scripture teaches in 2 Timothy 3.15. The wealth of God, then, is the wealth of his mercy. His mercy is is universal. It's toward all. Why would you boast in your wealth, which after all is uncertain? If I were a rich man, I'd become a poor man to become truly rich. Working on this mystery. Let's work on it together. Thank you, Father, for the mystery of the gospel, which is the un- It's the opening of a door to a treasure chest of mercy that we never thought, never dreamed that we would ever see. The mystery opens the door to wealth that is incalculable, unsearchable, incomprehensible, inscrutable, and it's all in Christ. And he's in us and we're in him. And God will summarize all things, all beings, and all their times in Christ. What a message. But we only appreciate that message, Father, and we recognize this. The smaller we are in our own eyes, the more we recognize the fantastic magnificence and largeness of your great mercy. 